So just to kind of inform you about our, our Easter egg outreach, we're not endorsing the Easter Bunny, just, just so you know. What we're going to do is we're going to fill this lawn on our east and fill this lawn to our west with Easter eggs and ha have our kids come out and find the eggs. And some eggs are, have a special number on them. And those 12 eggs are going to tell the Easter story. The first one's going to be opened up, and you're going to find a palm frond. We're going to talk about what happened on on uh, Palm Sunday and so on down to Jesus' uh, crucifixion and resurrection. So that's how that's going to be presented. Again, we're not just doing this for, again, for Easter Bunny's sake. We're doing it because we want to present the gospel to kids. So if you want to come out and help with that, Please be here at 10 o'clock next week. We could use some help in distributing. I think we have close to a, we're going to try and get a, a close to a thousand eggs. So that's a lot of candy. And so, uh, I hope you're going to be part of that. Well, let me ask you, has there ever been a time in your life where you thought you knew something and all of a sudden the paradigm shift, shifted? I mean, you thought you knew something and, and well, it's not exactly how I thought it was. Maybe it was that time when, as a child, you realized that even though you look out to the west and the earth seems flat, it's actually round. Or maybe you're singing a song like, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, and you realize that Ebenezer has nothing to do with Scrooge. It has to do with a rock of remembrance of help found in First Samuel chapter 7. You know, sometimes God is in the in the business of kind of taking what we know and, and turning it on its head. And as we head into this Easter season, we're going to step out of 1 Corinthians 4 a little bit and focus on this Easter season, looking to recall the life and death events of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who has impacted history, individual lives, and eternity more than anyone who's ever walked this earth. So the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three episodes in the Gospel of Mark, talking about what did Jesus do and why did he come. The beginning of the Gospel, Mark says this in verse 1 of, of the first chapter. It says, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As you can see, the opening words of the Gospel make some assertions. First of all, that his story is actually a gospel. It is good news. Number two, that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And we're going to talk about what that means a little bit today. And number three, that he is the Son of God. He's not just a man. He's God who is put on flesh. He is divine. And so, well, a funny thing about Mark's gospel is John Mark, who penned this gospel, was not actually one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Actually, later on in life, he became kind of Simon Peter's close associate and assistant. And as he heard Peter telling the gospel story over and over again, as Peter was there with Jesus, he got that firsthand account. And so what we're getting here is kind of a disciple's view of what it was like to follow Jesus. And today we're going to try and imagine what it was really like to be there with him. And that key moment in his ministry where he reveals himself as the Christ, as the King.
So before we get going, let me pray for us, and then we'll look into the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 8, if you're going to follow along uh, with us today. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, there is no one like you, and you are always changing our paradigm. So today, as we look into your word, as you reveal yourself as the Messiah, as the King, would you open our eyes and help us to see how you want to be king of our lives and come and reign and rule in us. So Holy Spirit, come, open the eyes of our hearts, and use this time to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're going to pick it up at verse 27 in, in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus and his disciples went out to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Number one, Jesus is the king. Imagine yourself as one of Jesus' disciples. He came alongside of you, maybe at your place of business, and he called you to follow him. Maybe you were a fisherman. You've been following him now for about two, two and a half years. And you've never seen or heard anyone like him. You've seen him heal. You've seen him touch lepers. People that were outcasts in society who had no hope of being healed. And turned their skin to that of a newborn baby. You've seen him cause the lame to walk again. The blind to see again the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. He seems to have nature itself at his very beck and call. He stops a storm on the middle of the sea. Not only that, he walks on water as though it were dry ground. He's able to feed a crowd of 5,000 and then 4,000 with just a few loaves and fish. And then he raises a young girl back from the dead. He's not just a miracle worker. He seems to have authority. When he quotes scripture, he doesn't do it like he's just memorizing it. He's doing it as though he's speaking it himself. As though he has authority over it. Though they're his very words. And when he teaches, he teaches in parables that engage the heart and the mind. And you don't understand all of them, but you know that they're from above. You know they're from heaven. And even demons seem subject to him. People who've been in bondage to being demon-possessed, demons have to flee when Jesus commands them. He's authoritative even to the point of correcting the spiritual leaders of the people. And he makes claims that only God himself seems to be able to make. 
that of being Lord of the Sabbath, that of being able to forgive sins. For as long as you've known him, you've suspected. You've been afraid to ask, but you've suspected that he is the one. And you've been around him long enough to know that when he asks a question, he's not asking for information. He's doing it to teach you something. He's doing something to reveal himself. And so when he asks, who do people say that I am? And the answer is John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, you know that that's not even half the story. But then he asks you, you, who do you say that I am? This gets to the crux of the matter. And Peter, who always seems to answer for the group, for better or for worse, he blurts it out. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And there it is. Jesus, you are God's anointed one. You are the one God has promised long ago, to come and rescue us, the descendant of David, the one whom God says, I will be a father to him, and you will sit on David's throne, and you will set up God's kingdom here on earth. And after centuries now of oppression from Gentiles, he's going to kick them out and restore the glory of Israel. He is the king of all kings as far as you're concerned. And then there's that present pause of, did we get it right, Jesus? And you feel relief and elation as he confirms what you've said, but telling you to keep that information to yourself. Strange, but that always seems to be Jesus' way. Either in giving glory to his Father or not wanting to attract a mob or crowd that would really are just there for the show. But inwardly, you are ecstatic. Yes! I got it right! I am following God's Messiah! Jesus comes to each one of us. And he does ask us, Who do you say that I am? More than 2,000 years later. Am I just a good teacher? A good example? Am I a prophet? Just a good man? Or am I who I say I am? The Christ. The King. And how will you respond to me? But even before the dust settles on this understanding that he is the Christ, that he is the King, Jesus takes that concept and turns it on its ear. Verse 31, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have the mind of the things of God, but the things of man. And if we were going through a series again on the Gospel of Mark, really this is the turning point in the Gospel. Jesus is the King who must die. 
Jesus is the king who must die. Frequently throughout Jesus' ministry, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. His favorite title for himself. Yes, it does denote his humanity. But it's a title that comes from the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel. It's a messianic figure who comes with God's angels to set everything right. And isn't that the expectation? Of the Messiah. Isn't that what you've come to do, Jesus? To set everything right. And yet Jesus turns around and says, And I must suffer. Or the Son of Man, talking to himself, must suffer. Now, throughout history, no one really put the concept of suffering and the Messiah together. Yes, there are those suffering servant passages, like in Isaiah 53, but they never associated it with the hope. Of the Messiah, because he's the one who, who's come to set things right. It makes no sense that he would suffer, that he would be rejected, that he would be killed. But Jesus says, I must suffer. I must suffer. That means it is necessary. It means it's not an option. It means this is my mission. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And must rise again. Notice that nobody really picks up on that part. Nobody picks up on the, rise again, what? No, it's just suffer, reject, die. Everyone's in shock. And Peter is so incensed. He grabs Jesus by the arm and, and tries to take him aside. And, and you know, it really never happened because everyone's looking, right? And he rebukes Jesus. No, Jesus, this isn't for you. That's not what the script says. Messiah doesn't suffer and die. Inwardly, this is not what I signed up for in following you. He rebukes him. And by the way, the word rebuke in the Greek means rebuke. He's taking Messiah, he's correcting the Messiah. But if you think Peter's rebuke is strong, Jesus' rebuke is stronger. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now when we think of Satan, we think of a little man with horns and a pitchfork and a, you know, Ponytail. What he's saying, the word Satan means adversary. Peter, you're right. I am the Messiah. I am the king. But what you're telling me right now is you're my adversary. Because I have a mission and I have to complete this. And you view me as a king. Yes, you view me as a king. But you view me as a king to make your dreams come true for your hopes, for your dreams, for your benefit, rather than accomplishing the plans, the will of God. And I think this is something we need to ask ourselves. How many times do we come to Christ and pay Him lip service of, yes, you are the King, but we come to Him with our agenda, and we're angry and we're discouraged when He doesn't make that agenda happen. 
And the question is sometimes, do we really view Jesus as the king, or do we view him as our servant? But that still begs the question, why, why does Jesus have to come and die? Why does the king have to come and die? Well, there are three answers here. Number one, to satisfy God's justice. Even if we have a positive disposal attitude towards God, we do not have the ability to please Him with our life because of our sin. Now that's active rebellion or passive indifference. The prophet Isaiah would say this, Chapter 53, verse 6 is, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We do our own thing. And the wages of that sin, the penchant for doing things our own way, it's death. It's death. It's why Adam and Eve had to be covered with the skins of animals to cover their nakedness. It's why the Sacrificial system was there to cover our sin. It was there to teach us that sin is costly. It causes death. And Jesus comes to be that final sacrifice, that final covering. Romans chapter 8, in verses 3 and 4 says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's an irony in this passage, by the way, in Jesus' prediction. Who's Jesus going to suffer at the hands of? And who is he going to be rejected by? It'll be the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. It will be the spiritual leaders of the people. Isn't that interesting? Those who should have stood for justice and truth, instead they'll conspire to put an innocent man to death by legal means. It goes to show that the world's systems are corrupted by sin. We can't bring about God's good end because we're corrupted by sin. Jesus' death shows the bankruptcy of the world in our hearts. And Jesus has to die to take upon himself the just punishment that we deserve to satisfy his own justice. Because he's the only one who can pay it purely. Number two, Jesus the king has to die because we need someone to conquer death. Look at the end of verse 31. Talking about what's going to happen to him. He must, must be killed and after three days rise again. This is the part that, that nobody talks about. But from the Garden of Eden, death has reigned in the lives of men and women. Everyone dies. Jesus would enter the jaws of death and then break its jaw. He would win a victory for us, for those who believe that we could not win ourselves. Jesus will say in his own earthly ministry, 
John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life, and the, and the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And we're going to celebrate that so much more in two weeks. But I'm just tipping the scale right now, just tipping my hat. The kingdom of God is one that lasts beyond this life. And Jesus would take upon himself the sting of death in order to cross that threshold so that we might have life. Number three, Jesus the king has to die to show us what love is and how to love. In a world that's full of what I call mercenary love, I'll love you if you love me. And my interest is what is in it for me. Jesusly, lavishly, selflessly gives himself up for even those who hate him because he loves us. Because he loves us. And he wants to be with us. And not much more is in it for him except restoring relationship with us because he loves us. The first epistle of John Chapter 4, verse 10 says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for us. Romans 5, 8. God, the Word says, God demonstrates His own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, in rebellion against Him, Christ died for us. He shows us His love by giving up His life. And that kind of love is a love that we can never be separated from. And once you know that love, once you know it, it causes you to love differently. To be able to give yourself like him because of what he has given himself for you. To extend grace, to extend mercy, to extend forgiveness because you've received grace. You've received mercy. You've received forgiveness from him. Jesus would tell his disciples later on, John chapter 15, verses 20, uh, 12 through 14, This is my command. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's own life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus is the king who dies to show us what love is and show us how to love. And then it leads to these words here in Mark 8, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Number three, Jesus is the King that calls us to die, that we might live. These verses could very easily be their own sermon. But what Jesus is saying is, since I am a king, 
that will go to the cross. And following me, yes, you too must go to the cross. What does it mean for us to take up our cross and follow him, to lose your life in order to find it? It can't mean that we're paying Jesus back. Because his his atonement is sufficient. But it does mean, I think, holding on to your faith, valuing him as a greater reality, as a greater value than even your own life. That was true of a lot of first century Christians, including most of the twelve disciples. And it even, even happens today. Back in 2016, there were 20 Egyptian Christians captured by ISIS who willingly gave their lives for Jesus. The thing is, since Jesus conquered death, their death actually ushered ushered them into his very presence. But ultimately, it means to value and treasure the king, his good news and his message, above anything else this world has to offer. For some of us, that might mean giving up the comforts of this life, of this earth, this homeless family and prosperity in order to go someplace and advance the gospel. For some, it's how you interact with people, your reputation, your popularity being sacrificed, maybe sometimes being viewed as strange or backward or weird to hold up Jesus' word and his truth. There are all sorts of feelings of death taking place. The word used for life and even soul in this passage is the word psyche. The word we get psychology from. It means self or soul or even identity. If you look to this world for your identity, your true self, your true soul, your life, you'll be left wanting. You pursue things like money and possessions, status and power, privilege and experiences, or even traditional things that we consider good like family, legacy, and children. And use that as your identity. It's going to leave you wanting. They're, they're good for a moment. But not only do these things can be taken from you, but they tarnish over time. In the Old Testament, there's a man who had it all. His name was Solomon. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And the opening words of that book are vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And looking to this earth for his identity, for his life, he discovered it was all vanity. Yes, Jesus is saying, If you're going to follow me, there will be times in choosing me, choosing my good news, where it will feel like in your flesh that you are dying. It will feel like you are dying. But the reality is you're actually gaining life. And if you'll find your identity in me, as my child, as one of my people, as one who is dearly and deeply loved and accepted, And as you experience 
my life in you. Letting me live my life in you and through you through my Holy Spirit. Starting to change what you value. Change what you treasure. And see me working through you and doing things that you have no ability to do in your own ability. And knowing that I am giving you a life that you cannot lose. You can lose it all in this world, but you can't lose me. Yes, you'll be gaining light. Because we live in a world that's sinful. That's doing its own thing that thinks God has nothing to do with our lives. We live in a world that is adulterous. And I don't mean there's a lot of adultery out there, although that's probably true. But we are faithless to our true God, to our true King, to our Creator, not only our Creator, but our Savior. And this is a call to be faithful and choose the one who is the King. Like no one that ever lived. The one who had to die to give us the right legal standing before a holy God, to give us life that never ends, and to give us and show us his love. And to show us that in losing our life to him, in investing ourselves in him and his kingdom, we actually gain life. He is the king. He is the king. How are you relating to the king? It's the custom here at Breen Community Church to celebrate what the King accomplished on the cross in dying and giving up his life for us. This is the Lord's table. It's not our table. So if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're welcome at this table. And kids, if you put your faith in Jesus and mom and dad say okay, you're welcome as well. They say no, we, we'll talk afterward after the service. But this is a time where we remember. We remember what God has done. We remember that he has given his life because we had nothing to give in order to make us his people. And we remember that it was our sin that put him on the cross. So we come thoughtfully. And understanding that we need to do business with him before we take of this of this celebration. Out of First Corinthians chapter eleven, the Apostle Paul will instruct, therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are, not, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So we're going to take a few moments before we participate in this celebration and ask the Lord to search our hearts, show us areas where we're out of sorts with him, to take him at his promise that if we confess our sin, he is faithful, he is just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then to come to this table 
with gratitude and thankful hearts.